Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Blair. Uh, the history of Roadrunner Record research continues with this conversation with Dave Longcow. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, Dave was king of all things radio and radio promotion from the late 90s to 2008 and really shepherded the Roadrunner radio team into the 21st century, into the Nickelback Slipknot era, into the Universal era. Uh, as such, he had a lot of value to add to my understanding of that particular period of time. So let's let Dave do the talking. One, two, fuck shit up. You start there, what, 90, is it 7, 8, or 9? One of those, isn't it? Um, let's see. I was there for 10 years, and I left in 2008. So, 98, so you 99, right around there. Just before... Everything blows up in that period. We have we're coming out of the flagship era of say Tapo Negative, Sepultura, Life of Agony. They had that great run in the early 90s, like with especially Bloody Kisses going gold. And then for the latter half of that decade, there's like a there's a period of like infrastructural reconciliation. There's different things that Case is trying to do. Um, and it's a weird time because they experiment as well. Yeah, that it. The, the label definitely started changing philosophies um, when I got there. Yeah, yeah. I think that's this. I allude to that in one of the questions, which we'll come to. But let's just straight out of the gate. Let's try and set the tone. Am I? I'm trying to. I guess I'm looking for validation here because I've been saying that I think it's important what the label did. So I'll ask first. When you reflect on your time at the label. What springs to mind? Is there any kind of does it jump at you as like a this was a critical part of the independent the metal indie scene? This was a critical infrastructural body which helped metal push the boundaries. What what how do you reflect on the label? Well, that's a funny one. It's gonna take a little time to explain this. That's to fine. You. Uh metal was not my world. Rock was my world, mm. and those were two. Definitely separate things. Radio was my world, along with rock. <clears throat> Radio and metal really didn't coexist at this point. You know, I come from programming radio stations in the early 70s to becoming disenchanted with doing that when it got all homogenized. Mm -hmm. And so I was convinced to come work for a record label started as a local promotion person in Cleveland. When I was in radio, it was the Detroit market and it was the, you know, it was breaking all of the, the rock artists back then, the Bowies of the world and everything, Cream, you know, the magazine there. It was just a whole, it was a movement that was exciting. Mm. And uh, then I went to promoting records for labels in Cleveland at a time when the radio station there that was rock WMMS mm -hmm. ruled the world, you know, everybody looked to them. Right. <clears throat> um, you know, and I worked for different labels, you know, RCA twice, <laughs> <laughs> MCA, Arista, A&M. Um, and throughout the years, uh, it was always as head of rock, Yeah. you know, once I was done as a local person in, in Cleveland. Um, and uh, 
I'm at RCA. Well, let me back up a second. Derek Shulman and I got close when I was heading up rock at Polygram. Mm -hmm. And he was an A&R guy. And we were going to see the bands he had. He had Cinderella, Kingdom Come. Um, actually, Kingdom Come was uh, the uh, project that got me the job as vice president there because uh, nobody thought it was worth a damn. Right. And I had a lot of friends in radio, and they <clears throat> uh, get it on just sounded similar to uh, – Led Zeppelin, mm -hmm. and I convinced all the radio people, hey, play this, and say, you just got it in the mail, you know, in a white chuck, you know, and you don't know what it is, sounds real good, sounds like somebody we all know, and all the stations said, oh, that'd be a cool thing to do in the morning. It blew up from there, mm -hmm. you know, next thing you know, you got a gold album, I don't know, it might have been platinum even, I don't know, and then there was Cinderella and uh, other things, and we became close friends. And he called me when he went to Roadrunner. And it was at a time where I was really disenchanted at RCA. Right. Who was terrible at rock. They had nothing. I was there for five years. All I can remember is Dave Matthews Band, who they got, luckily, because all the other labels passed thinking it was a, a jazz band. Right. <laughs> you know? And then there was Verve Pipe. Other than that, there was nothing, you know? Mm. So... Although I was close friends with the president there, and we both grew up through the Cleveland market, his GM and I just didn't get along. Sure. You know, uh, and I was disenchanted. So Derek called, <clears throat> and he says, uh, I'd love to have you come over to Roadrunner. I said, Roadrunner? Why would I want to go there? You know, my whole career was major labels, um, you know, uh, and when I wasn't really working for a, a label, I had an independent promotion company. I had, uh, I worked management for uh, John Mellencamp mm -hmm. for a couple years. So he said, just come over and let's talk. Well, <clears throat> at that particular time, like I said, I didn't know anything about Roadrunner or any of the bands, <clears throat> except for Typo, because they ended up on the radio. Mm -hmm. But I had uh, a couple of guys working for me at RCA. It was their favorite label. Okay. All their favorite bands were there. And they started talking because, you know, one of them is my assistant and he answers the phones. Are you going to Roadrunner? I said, I don't know. I don't know anything about the label. I'm going over to do, do some talking with, uh, with Derek. And uh, <clears throat> they started, you know, teaching me for lack of a better term, you know, about okay. and giving me music to listen to. It was part of Roadrunner's history and mm -hmm. getting an idea for the whole thing. So as I'm learning all that stuff, I go over to Derek and sit down. And I said, what do you want to do? He says, well, we're a metal label. And uh, I want you to come over and I want to get more out of our, our metal releases. I said, well... I don't really think that's a good idea. And I don't think that's for me. Now, mm -hmm. if you want me to come over here and do that the best I can, <clears throat> and at the same time, look for the right band or bands to bring in to start to expand our universe into more rock, nah, I'd like to do that. 
Right. So he said, well, what would that entail? I said, well, I'd have to have a staff. You can't do this without a staff. And you guys just don't have any staff. You never had a staff. You always bring in someone who's the head of the promotion department and that's all you got. You have no foot soldiers. Mm-hmm. You have to do this right. So as I'm sitting there talking to him and getting more excited about the whole thing, uh, we ended up finishing talking one night and I was sitting in his office and we're having a beer and getting caught up, house with family and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And I'm, you know, pilfering through his CD cases that are piled up on the desk and I'm going through them. And this one, the cover on this one just struck me. And it was the original cover for the Nickelback record, The State. Right. So and I went, wow, what's this? He says, oh, it's a band we passed on a couple months ago. I said, really? I was just sitting there. I'm curious. Play me the key track in your mind. Played the song. <clears throat> I said, let me take this home. Listen mm-hmm. to this whole thing. He says, go ahead. We, we passed, though. I said, well, I just want to hear this. I'm intrigued. Mm-hmm. And I came back. I said, this is it. If you sign this band, I'll come work here. He said, wow. you're kidding me. <laughs> I said, no, I'm not kidding. I said, the other reason why I would come is because there is a lull in rock radio. There is a lull in pop radio right mm. now. There's nothing. There's nothing building excitement. Pop radio is not playing any rock. And rock is playing a lot of boring, formulaic stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's no excitement. I said, that opens the door for metal. And some of the radio guys I talked to said, yeah, you know, we're thinking of playing more, starting it out at these things out at night on the air. And we think maybe to juice the station up. And I sure. went, well, this would be like great for Roadrunner. So, so uh, some stars were aligning then, wasn't it? Really, it seemed like yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, the the first record, well, bottom line is they ended up signing. Derek kept coming and saying, "You sure about this? They want too much money." I said, "Just sign them." <laughs> One of those deals. <laughs> so he got him signed, and <clears throat> then he was gone from the label. And that was Derek's tenure. Yeah, very yeah. short while I was there. Mm. <clears throat> um, and the GM then uh, became the president. Jonas. Jonas, and yep. uh, we became really tight. Right. Uh, I always, when I've been researching this, mate, it's because I spoke to Ron Berman as well. And obviously there's this real sort of like... Ron, a f- Ron didn't even know what he was doing. You know, all of a sudden I'm pushing for his band that got passed, all of a sudden get signed. And he's like, I love you, man. <laughs> I said, all right, we got to do an edit of the this, of this single. He says, I don't know how to do edits. <laughs> I said, I'll take in. We'll do it. I like how, um, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, it's, it's cool. It's, it's fine. Um, he, was, he was saying that when he first started the label, there was like a, a jazz upheaval in a, a, some in some scene somewhere. And Kay said to Ron, right, you're the jazz guy now. And that, <laughs> that was kind of his, his foundation into the A&R world. But th- th- when I'm researching this stuff, um, I've always got this, there's an implication that Jonas is president, yourself coming in, and Ron's sort of his, his A&R sensibility for rock all seem to align really well, which carved a completely new path, which, you know, we could, we could even r- rattle off like a family tree of like, 
contemporary good hard rock like Nickelback, Theory of Dead Man. You can even say Airborne, Blackstone, Cherry, loads of things. It completely gave the brand a completely new breath of life. But in because I'm piecing this thing together, like slowly but surely as an outsider, it felt like those are the three stars that aligned. Yeah, I, you know, just to continue what I was saying there. Yeah. So <clears throat> they get signed, but it, as they're building up and we're preparing their release, a lot of other things were going on. You know, like I said, this was our chance to, you know, have Roadrunner lead the way into what radio wanted now all of a sudden because mm-hmm. we had it. So I needed to hire a staff and mm-hmm. they did give me the budget to do that because first time Case ever did anything like that. He said, boy, this better work. <laughs> 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 and uh, So, you know, the guys that worked for me at uh, RCA, they heard that I was doing this and that mm-hmm. I was going to hire a staff and they were begging me for jobs. <laughs> RCA hated my guts. I took the four best people and they all wanted to come. It wasn't like I had to ask them, hey, would you like to come over with me and start this from scratch? They were like jacked to do it. Wow. So it was really terrific. And so they were the foot soldiers. Mm-hmm. And we went out first with um, the cover of Gary Newman Cars mm-hmm. from uh, Fear Factory. Yeah. Uh, and uh, first record we worked, it was a top 10 record. Well, this, it was I think I was speaking to Mark Abramson. I think he was the one that was saying it was all about college radio for that particular track. That's the thing. Yeah, Mark wasn't even there yet. He was we still. We didn't have a Mark yet. He came Mine in. And Daniel then that told me. Um, hmm. He came in after I didn't have anyone in Mark's position at that point. Right. So, you know, I went out on the road with uh, um, the Fear Factory song. And, you know, I remember first day at work there. I stayed the whole first day and met everybody and sat around and talked to everybody. The very next day I was gone for two weeks. You know, I didn't have a staff yet, you know, so it was mm. all me at that point. So what was that? What are you doing on the road? Well, the first place I went was to Canada to go see Nickelback. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was acting as an A&R guy. I told, you know, Derek, I'm going to go up there, you know, I'll get them, convince them to come here. Yeah. Then I went and they did, we're doing a showcase show at the uh, Horseshoe. <clears throat> And uh, oddly, I didn't realize it, but there were a bunch of Canadian labels up there also. Yeah. One of them had a guy in my position uh, for Warner Brothers up mm-hmm. there who used to be, who used to work for me in radio when I was in radio. So wow. we were okay. close friends. And there was, uh, there were all these, you know, guys up there and they were all, you know, schmoozing them and all that. And uh, I remember just stepping in front of Chad at that point, whenever one of them come up and say, you know, forget it. They're coming to Roadrunner. He kept looking at me and go, you got some balls. I said, I'm telling you, you know, I'm your biggest fan and this is going to work. You want to be with me and us. He said, ah. And then I saw something in him that uh, made me go, wow, this is pretty special. Mm. He, uh, a couple of girls wanted to say hello to him. And he says, oh, can I, we were talking about business and all Mm -hmm. that. He says, give me a minute. I want to go over here. He says, so he goes over and talks to him, comes back. He says, God, I love my job. (laughs) 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 Anyway, so I did that. And then I went from city to city with uh, Fear Factory track cars. 
right. and started getting it played and slowly built the staff. And then they went out and supported me on the effort. And like I said, we had top 10 record. First time they ever had a, mm. a top 10 record at Roadrunner. It's like, oh, that was exciting. Then the next thing that gets delivered to me was Cold Chamber, Shock the Monkey mm-hmm. cover. And I said, this is great too. You know, not only do we get the heaviness that radio's looking for, but in both these cases, there's a familiarity too that helps usher it in. Mm-hmm. And that worked. That was a top 10 single. So all of a sudden, things are looking good. You think that's something symptomatic, Dave? Like when we're, when we're ushering in a new wave of, of metal in like intersecting radio it's through the familiarity that's why like smooth criminal by alien ant farm was really successful and right. tracks like that do you think that was like the gateway for some people absolutely yeah, yeah. no yeah. doubt about it so at that point we're writing nickelback yeah uh, well nickelback was a different kind of animal for this label more expensive to deal with <laughs> not only the expense of having staff but now all of a sudden there's all of this stuff you've got to do for commercial radio with, with, to start a band like this. <clears throat> and I always told radio and told our staff to tell radio, the rock stations, look, you, you can tell them they know that whenever they start a band and the band gets big and it crosses over to pop radio, labels are just giving the band to the pop stations. And then the rock stations get really upset Mm-hmm. We're the reason why they're big, blah, 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 blah. I said, you tell radio, and I will too, that that'll never happen with Nickelback if they support them. Right. And they kept looking at me going, yeah, I believe you. I said, I'm telling you, it, it's not like other places I've worked. I can guarantee you that that'll happen. <clears throat> so they started playing the first uh, single. That was a top 10 single, but it was very expensive. And every two weeks when Case came to town, first move was coming into my office and sitting on the couch and going, what's going on? I'm I'm bleeding money. I kept telling him, trust me, this is going to work. You're going to lose money on the first album. I said, and if if it was on any other label after that, they'd drop them. I said, but I don't think you will, because I'm telling you right now, the second record will be the culmination of it all, and it'll be big. We'll, We'll run three singles here off the first one, set the base, and if the band delivers like I know they can, we'll have bigger hits on the next one. <laughs> How did and you convince Casey? walking out scratching his head, <laughs> but he supported me, and I'll never forget him for that, because I saw how much money was being spent. It was crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> That's you know, crazy. Kind of worked, and uh, then I remember uh, Chad and Mike calling me one night, and it was just chat one night. It's like one o'clock in the morning. I was asleep. <laughs> I, you know, I, I said, what's up? He says, I got it. He said, what do you mean you got it? I got it. Listen. And it was just him and a guitar. And he started strumming and singing how you remind me. Wow. It's like, it's pretty magical. Yeah. I said, yeah. wow. And I said, boy, better get that produced properly. <laughs> better get it down right in the studio. He says, I will. I will. And uh, they delivered that. And, uh, um, Let, let's 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 put a milestone there, and let's just reflect on this sort of like everything up to how you remind me, because there's a few things I want to unpack. If that's all right, sure. So then we'll get to Slipknot. 
<laughs> yeah, a whole other story. And then we'll get to Universal and we'll get to the dichotomy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. So when you arrive at the label, obviously Derek's already there. Did you get an impression? Because where, where my head's at, at the minute is during this period, what Case is looking for for Roadrunner is everything up to this point has been underground, successful, but underground right. by design. And now he wants to inject a bit of um, commercialized credibility. And this is why a top floor is added to all these buildings. And that's why we have the Derek Shulmans and Jimmy Devlins of the world coming in, all these major label veterans, including yourself. Is Does that marry up with your understanding of why there was this, this sort of expansion in a way? Well, partially, he was starved for a hit. Yeah. Uh, also believe he was running on a thin string. Mm-hmm. Um, he could have been bought up during the first, that first year I was there. Someone had the easily. option. Yeah. I and, know that. Uh, that was a little bit scary for a little while. Um, yeah, he wanted a spotlight on it. Mm. You know, otherwise he would never have allowed me to hire, you know, half a dozen people staff and <laughs> roadrunner based on nothing but a dream, you know? <laughs> Had Arcade been bought at this point, or is that a little bit later? I don't recall. Okay. Okay. No worries. One thing I vaguely which- remember, I mean, I tried to stay out of that because there was nothing yeah. I could do with that. What I could do was things I never was able to do at other labels. Mm. At other labels, you stayed in your alley. That's it. You, you know. Mm-hmm mess around in other departments against other department heads that cause all kinds of friction with roadrunner they welcomed me to to deal in the a and r world with them they welcomed me to help get bands signed they welcomed my opinion on what we should Mm. or shouldn't sign that never happened at any other label i worked for as a promotion person did you feel it was a cultural fit for you oh it was wonderful I got to do all kinds of things I never was able yeah. to do before. Yeah. You know, unless I was, you know, managing Mellon camp, I could do some of those kind of things. <laughs> um, One thing you touched on, which mm-hmm. um, Amy Chiaretto mentioned in a different angle was staying loyal to the non-pop radio. So in her example, she said, when Slipknot comes around with an album cycle, we make sure that the, underground cult metal radio stations who helped us out in the 90s early 2000s they're the first ones to get the brutal stuff without without fail because that's the the foundation of of how you face into the wider world absolutely you know things have to follow a pattern you know and that's where it starts you build some a little bit of response and then try and take it to the next level yeah um so when you were shopping cars around, is was that an established process? As in, we'll always we'll always look after you, you guys, the radio stations that look after us, or is that something you brought in? Well, there's an industry convention, then there's what you're doing, and then there's what Roadrunner did prior to. Right. Well, radio never worried about you know Shock the Monkey or yeah. uh, Fear Factor because they knew that was not going to those weren't going to cross the pop radio. Mm. They were going to own those. You know, it's as valuable to them as big that they can make it, mm-hmm. you know, on their stations. Uh, it's only when you come around with something like a Nickelback, which is 
strict rock, you know. Yeah. But, uh, they were saying, I don't know, they, uh, I'm tired of breaking all these bands for everybody. And then they take them over to pop. And next thing you know, they're doing shows for the pop radio stations. I said, I'll, I'll never allow that to happen. I promise you that right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, you see otherwise, don't ever play another one of my records again. Wow. And uh, so they bought into it reluctantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was able to live true to that. And all of our staff did too. And that was a, a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so, so Slipknot, there's another one. All right. <laughs> Here we go. We, we've signed Slipknot. 98.99. Yeah. And uh, I'm listening to this record and I'm going, where's my vehicle? I don't, I, this is all so brutal that I think it, was, it would cross the line for these guys and they'd go, oh, Dave, man, I can't play that. That's, that's a bit much. So I went into uh, Monty, uh, Connor, we're talking about, I said, I I don't know what to do. I mean, I know I want to, and I've got to find a way to take this band that's really doing extremely well and starting to rise to the very top of the genre of metal. I got to figure something out. He said, well, what is it you're trying to? I said, well, um, what the heck was a single I'm trying Wait and bleed. I said, that's close, but you know, if only he would sing the chorus part, I think we'd have a heck of a record. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, Well, you want to talk to the producer? I said, Yeah, let's get him on the phone. So I'm explaining this. So I forget the guy's name. I think it's Jim, I forget his name. <clears throat> I'm explaining to him everything of what to do and all that. He says, Well, you know. This band did this record and they have a ton of masked tracks that are barely audible, yeah, if at all. And they're just all piled on top of each other, which creates this... Um, Soundscape sort of... Yeah. Yeah. For lack of a better word. It's Ross and Robinson so, that did the debut, by the way. Ah, so... <clears throat> Uh, he said, let me go look and see what I can find there. And so he does, and he reaches out back to me, and he plays a couple of these tracks, and all of a sudden I heard one. I go, oh, my God, that's it. Bring that one to the top. Bring the, Mask the other one down. Not mm-hmm. unaudible, but, you know, bring it down so this is the one you hear to the forefront. Mm-hmm. He does, and it was Wait and Bleed, the mm. radio version. It was like, that's it. I got it, you know? <laughs> so is it really about... Little did I know. Little, and I did. We had Sorry. to do all this behind the band's back. Right. Because their manager, Steve Richards, who mm-hmm. has passed, um, he was quite a character. Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't want the band talking to anybody at the label. Right. Uh, he told them I was poison. Uh, don't talk to him, don't have any dealings with him whatsoever. And he didn't know, and the band didn't know, that I was doing this. Mm. Mm. Okay. And Monty didn't tell him, nobody told him. Producer didn't tell him, nothing. And one day he found out because we were going to schedule the release and put both uh, both versions on a CD Pro, and get it mm. off to radio. And he went nuclear, don't you dare send that to radio. Well, <laughs> I did. <laughs> it's your job to promote it, man. 
<laughs> yeah. And it started to blow up, mm-hmm. but it only blew up to a certain degree. You know, it would, we'd get it mid charted at rock. We'd get it just on uh, uh, the chart at alternative, mm-hmm. which was a major accomplishment for Roadrunner Records. And then it would fall off. We worked this thing three times in a row. We just wouldn't quit. It would peak, come back. We'd go find new people to help get it to another, you know, midi type of peak. Mm-hmm. Come back. And the third time, then it really blew. I mean, it was around forever. It never had huge chart positions. Mm-hmm. But the amount of spins were like it was a, a big hit just over a three-part period of time. So what's the trick then? Because... Was it because Wait and Bleed with this sung chorus, it just became just accessible enough to go to to radio in its state? On top of that whole thing that I mentioned that the stations were starting to play more aggressive music yeah. for a period of a couple of years. They were coming out of being, you know, testing the records they're playing. Mm-hmm. And nothing's showing to be a major hit. They're just mm-hmm. playing some decent records that weren't doing a lot for their overall acceptance and ratings. And you're laying this the groundwork. was doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and because you're going out there doing the face-to-face work, you're yeah. laying the groundwork to yeah. eventually get those spins on, on in, in different peaks. Otherwise, it could have been, you know, who, who's Roadrunner? Who's this guy? No, let's just go with... Well, I, I, could, I don't even have a comparable. I don't even know what the heaviest thing on the radio was at that point. No, wait and bleed. Yeah, I meant mean prior to, but um, yeah. Oh, prior, well, typo, probably. Yeah, possibly, yeah, yeah. The thing is, man, it's, uh, it's well, difficult. you know, I think radio would tell you would be something like... Uh, was Limp Biscuit about at this point? Yeah, Limp, Limp was out. Corn. There was, you know, Cantrell and... Uh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and Corn. I think that my point of reference with radio is real. This is why I always try and dissect radio more because the UK radio experience is a lot more sanitized. Mm-hmm. There's like five yeah. FM radio stations within your vicinity. None of them are worth a damn. You're really tuning in for the Cold War um, analog broadcasts to make sure we're not being like destroyed or something. Or if the PM has got to make an announcement, that's kind of the British, that's the British radio experience. So I always have to sort yeah, of I understand it was really bizarre to me because I went over there for about five days when I was with Polygram and took mm-hmm. a bunch of people over for the uh, the Wall concert. Right, yeah. That was being done there. And I took people over there and I listened to the radio a lot. And I said, I don't get this at all. It makes no sense to me. <laughs> you know? But yeah, I guess you'd have to grow up there to... Well, I get a better understanding of it. I still don't. If there's one to be had. Because I I had a similar similar conversation with Ron when I was like, before Nickelback, was there a contemporary rock um, standard? And of course there is, but my point of reference is, well, all I had was Spice Girls, Blur, and Oasis. So it's really (laughs) tough for me. So when he said, 
you're full of shit, Jim. There was Creed, there was Stain, there was all these kind of like big acts that were doing the kind of mid-tempo thing. But we just, you know, it, I just would have no idea <laughs> who, right. I wouldn't have no access, especially because I was nine years old. So what the fuck would I know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so can, let's, can we break that open a little bit? So what's the, what's the value of alternative radio then in, in terms of, because you mentioned that being on the alternative charts was like a big then, deal. Why? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why well, is it? They, they succumb to what I envisioned as possibly happening when I was, you know, dealing with stations and hearing them, them talk about things and realizing that this form of music, mm. much more aggressive, is re- exactly what they need. Yeah. And what does <clears throat> pop need? I didn't find that out until I started... Uh, Trying to cross over how you remind me mm. when it became huge overnight at yeah. rock radio. And in dealing with pop radio, I'm finding out they now, a year or so later, from my uh, first realization, <clears throat> they're dealing with the same thing. All of their pop bands, nothing is doing anything. Mm. So they're saying, well, I guess we got to take a shot on some of the, the biggest rock songs. Yeah. I had it, <laughs> you know, the yeah. I, yeah. I, I, to, to think, to ever think that I would end up commandeering the number one most played song at radio overall formats with a roadrunner rock band. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't even think that would happen for me. I, Case didn't either. When I was going to work there, we set up a, bonus structure for me he says well let's put a bonus thing you know based on charts you know what you achieve Mm. and so you know he gave me the list all the different rock charts i said well what about pop and he started laughing you know he says well what do you mean i said well i want to have you know bonus structures for when i get big pop records too he says Okay, fine with me. I, all the while saying to himself, oh, we're never going to, I just want to be huge at rock. That's all sure. I really want, you know? Yeah. So <clears throat> that was pretty well. He kept coming to me, you know, with all of these bonuses every time we go. So he says, boy, I hate writing these checks to you, but I love writing these checks to you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to embellish something there, which you said. I think how you remind me, I can't remember which decade it was, but it was the most played song, period. On, I don't know if it was streams this uh, last decade or just overall before, but Maybe it was globally. Like, yes, I'm oh. not. And I'm not exaggerating. That was definitely a thing. I'll I'll dig it up for you. But it was certainly something to the flavor of it was the most played song. Period for a set period of time this century, and it's well, rough dealing with my tunnel vision. Oh God, yeah, yeah. But just America. to embellace the the. The and thing just we said. What you know, what we had with number one, it was like, this is killer. You know, my whole staff, we laughed about all the things. How wonderful is this? And of course, once that happened, all of a sudden, I had to be worthy of my word. Mm. You know, when all the pop stations are asking for the band for these their shows or bring them by the radio station, perform acoustically. And I kept saying, no, no. And the rock station says, boy. You, you live by your word. That was great. And that opened the door for just about any band that I would, you know, go after. Mm. My staff would go out, you know, we'd get shots that nobody else would. Because they knew that, well, if we break his band, mm. we know what'll happen. 
It's so interesting though, Dave, because I can only imagine the before Dave Lonko time of Roadrunner, but I imagine it's um, because <clears throat> it's metal and it's metal radio and you have metal staff, albeit a, a, a smaller staff. I imagine they were entrenched in a certain position of, well, we know what's going to do well and what's not going to do well. So when you came in with a an analytical frame of mind of there's a gap and we right. need to hit it with a hammer, sure. it well, must have been came, like such a When I came in, there were a lot of, you know, the metalheads that worked there. Mm. It was almost, I would say it was 95% metalheads. Yeah, black that t-shirt. Their geez. whole life, you know. Yeah. You know, I'd never really coexisted with, people like that mm. and that they thought i was going to ruin the label you know a lot of them when we signed nickelback there was a you know a war that went on a mild you know cold mm. war so to speak about it. and we even thought about well maybe we should it should be two different roadrunner labels really it should be roadrunner red and roadrunner mm-hmm. blue you know Really, we think, and I went. You know, no. Why? You have to be proud of sign the band. We'll get through this. You know, you guys. You know, don't worry about your other bands. And over the course of time, they all became really close friends, and they all knew I would do everything imaginable to protect the uh, Roadrunner image. And this Mm. was just, you know, adding on to it. But. We were going to stay a metal label hmm. that had some good rock credibility, also. Well, Nickelback had a Dimebag Daryl solo on, um, yeah. on Dollar Ivory. So, like, you, there's no, there's no complaining here. Okay, I can't think of anything else from this period which I can quiz you on because you, you've given me so much. I can, I can dive into. There's so much context for this period which I've now got. So, thank you for that. Now, let's. M- I do, I, I do feel sorry for some of the bands that. I couldn't get the right vehicle from right. Okay, do the same things with you know Sepultura, Soulfly, you know. Um, but with Killswitch, we were able to make inroads. They they mm. delivered a different kind of metal that did have some radio acceptable substance to it. You yeah, know? and I do remember when Mikey played me for the first time uh, that stuff. I said, "Wow!" And I remember. Grabbing him and grabbing him and said, come on, we're going to go bust into Jonas's office. They're at Ferret at this time. I'm oh, sorry? They're at, they're at Ferret Music at this time. And Ferret is run by Carl Severson, who was presumably yeah. like over there <laughs> right, in the same office or something. <laughs> so that, that was a fun time. That was great that they gave us the, the wherewithal to be able to take them to commercial radio. It's a great was, band, too. Was that the thing that you just sort of found, oh, okay, there's this heavy thing that's happening, and then there's just sometimes there's just a hook, and that's where you come in with the, the fishing rod. Yeah, there's got to be something something to hold on to. Yeah. You know, yeah. We're talking about radio. Something's got to pop out of the speakers to yeah. make your head turn towards the speaker. <laughs> okay, let's, let's talk about how you remind me then, because as we enter this period, this is, in fact, where are we now? Universal's, uh, yeah, in this three-month period before Silver Side Up drops, this is when the Universal acquisition happens. Did you notice any differences? to? Because the, the, the general consensus is, Dave, that once Universal got into the room, they were only really fussed about Slipknot. They didn't really know about Nickelback until... Exactly right. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, uh, 
the uh, president over there was Bob Jamison. Mm-hmm. Bob was a branch manager in Cleveland when I was a promotion man in Cleveland. So we knew each other really well. Mm-hmm. And like I said, he had a, a GM and we didn't uh, really coexist well at all. Sure. But Bob and I were tight there. And you know, we'd sit down over a couple tequilas every once in a while. And I pour my heart out to him. He'd go, Dave, he's my GM. I, I can't get in the middle of this. <laughs> but I understand. I understand. <laughs> um, so I stayed out of it. I, you know, I, from time to time, I kept thinking, should I call Bob? None of the people over there know anything about what I'm sitting on. Mm. which is how you remind me never again. They don't know. And I said, no, I'm not going to call. Bob will call me. You know, he'll ask me what else you got in the pipeline. He never did. Mm -hmm. So it was all about Slipknot until uh, the Germans saw some of the Slipknot imaging and told told them no way. And that was in the 11th hour. And he had to call Case and say, I got to pull out of the deal. Wow. Okay. So the universal deal nearly didn't happen. And no, this was RCA, not universal. Oh, I mistake. Okay. My mistake. Pulling up pulling it up wrong. Oh, so it's RCA. Let's let's take a step back then. So when because there's the story of the label is there's an there's an Edel lending money to Roadrunner. Roadrunner's in debt. This is what drives Casey Gart saying, all right, let's try and inject a bit of capital. So you're saying RCA was on the table until they saw Slipknot. Yeah. It was, right. There were two labels that were vying for it, for Roadrunner. And one was RCA. I forget who the other one was. But uh, Case liked Bob Jameson mm. and RCA. And they started doing the deal. And in the 11th hour, uh, home office said no way mm. i think they saw swastikas or something uh in some of the artwork right I'm not exactly sure on all of that mm. and it wasn't until after that when i found out because that was a shock to everybody yeah. i was actually excited i'd be able to go back and work with bob which i liked mm-hmm. and under well, your own terms in your own little sandbox in a way right. and the, his gm would have no wherewithal over me anymore you know i'd be calling the shots myself here and he'd live with them yeah. <clears throat> um and I, it was after that that i called bob i said why didn't you call me he said well, for what i said ask me if i had anything else in the pipeline mm-hmm. i think of why do you and i were playing it for him and they're going holy shit <laughs> <laughs> i said and quite frankly um the band's first single off the first album, I actually played for the GM over there. Mm-hmm. Um, when I said I was thinking of leaving. As a leader of men. Yep. And uh, I played it for him. I said, here's one of the reasons I'm thinking of going, because I'm able to work something that makes sense in the rock world. I don't have that here. Yeah. And I played it for him. He says, I don't get it. I hmm. said, okay, good. Okay. Well, that makes it easy for me. <laughs> <laughs> so when um, Leo Cohen comes in with the Universal deal, mm-hmm. as, we, as we said, there was only interest in the in Slipknot and eventually Nickelback once they, you know, wised up to it. But um, 
How does the, your world change when Universal steps in? Is it there's a big red button on your desk? I mean, it's the slip, not a nickelback button, where more resources are allocated your way from Universal, or is it? Are they a little more hands off than that? Uh, well, it was weird because once again, now all of a sudden, you know, I've been deprogrammed from dealing with people like that. Wow. Okay. Which I had done for decades. Yeah. You know, and now. I'm, you know, well into a new programming with a new way of doing things, which is so much more wonderful, mm-hmm. in my opinion, for me and for what we're accomplishing. So I had to be thrust back into them. And uh, it was, it was trying. Luckily, you know, Jonas and I would go and have meetings over there. And as we left the building and go walking back to our office, it's like, oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) They just do things totally different there. They talk different. They, uh, you know, go after each other. It's like, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So it was was tough, but we called the shots. Sure. Um, Did they know how to manage an act like Slipknot or Nickelback or even any of the other roster? No, or is it just a thing that was really happening didn't. to them or slash for them, really? The slipknots of the world, they didn't bother, you know. Yeah. We had it down, you know, all the way to when we were putting these bands on tour, we'd couple them all together. We put mm. three of our bands together on tour. Mm-hmm. Not only was it great for us um, and, and channeling all the dollars into one event for the three that you'd have to do, you know, three different ways. Yeah. But it, it caused a certain thing where they all started competing with each other. It was great to see the shows. You know, whoever was the opening act tried like hell to do better than the number two act. They all tried to end up with the best set at the end of the night. Yeah. And a lot of them talked about it when we go backstage after shows. You know, it was, it was a healthy thing. Mm, mm. I specifically except, for the, except for the one that had a bad show that night <laughs> I specifically remember the Black Crusade tour yeah. that was like all, all Roadrunner except Arch Enemy I think and maybe Shadows Fall I don't know where Shadows Fall was at that time but um, no that's, that's cool it's, it, it, I'll, I'll tell you about something that gets repeated often when I speak to people um, at, the, at the infancy of this universal relationship there's a conference a meeting there's like a, a global or something up in some hotel somewhere, somewhere nice. <clears throat> and the Universal guys are there and they're sitting separately, but, you know, integrating everyone's friendly as they were. And <clears throat> probably Hank Hacker. Love him. He finally stands up. He storms on the stage and he has a, a framed email from Case from, I think it must have been around September 2001 when Silver Side Up came out, basically saying... This thing is a hit. I'm not taking any fucking excuses. We are going to deliver this. It's going to be the best thing in the world. No ifs, no buts, and that's it. And Hank went up and said, like, this is the, the calling card to, you know, Roadrunner annihilating the rest of the planet. And apparently the Universal guys are like, what the hell's going on? There's yeah. a German <laughs> screaming at us. <laughs> yeah. I remember it well. Yeah. Where were we? Adirondacks? Some... Some casino place, hotel. Yeah, I'm trying my hardest to track down that email. Trying my, <laughs> my damnedest to track down the wording. I found like a few follow-up emails, but not the original um, call to arms. 
<laughs> I'll get there. I get there. Sweet. So tell me about why, how you remind me resonated with everyone. Well, like I said, you know, both the rock alternative and pop formats, you know, in that order mm. over the course of a period of time, started looking for something that made their station sound more exciting. Yeah. That got more coexistence from their listeners mm -hmm. and therefore better ratings because their ratings were slipping. And Nickelback was there. That was really the, you know, one of the first bands to, uh, you know, cross over. But in the rock uh, days of the first album, we worked three singles. One was top 10, one was top 15, another one charted. Like I said, we spent a lot of money, mm. but we built a base three tracks deep at a format that loved the band. Yeah. And was going to be there on the next record. And all I did was pray that I got the right songs, but I felt, felt comfortable with it. You know, I spent a lot of time up in Vancouver with the band, you know, mm. and, uh, they wanted to know exactly what they needed to do, what qualities there needed to be. Wow. Okay. They did. Did you expect it to be as big as it ended up being? Uh, when I heard it, I said it was a number one record. I right. didn't say it was a number one pop record at that point. Because <laughs> I wasn't really aware at that time, because it was still not coming to fruition, mm -hmm. that the pop stations were experiencing the same thing mm -hmm. that the rock stations were when metal started influxing their radio yeah. stations. So <clears throat> I remind me, because it's an overnight success at, at rock radio, yeah. really big, and we decide we want to take it to pop. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a format that none of our staff had walked in the doors of for a few years. Yeah. You yeah. Know, uh, so, you know, new relationships, sitting down with people, talking to them, and they're talking – and I'm hearing, we're all here. My whole staff, it's, just, it's unbelievable. We're hearing the same thing we heard from the rock guys when they were starting to embrace metal because they needed something. These guys need something. Where are they going to go? You know, all of the, the boy bands and stuff like that. And, and it, it was it was overkilled. Formulaic. I know saturated. Yeah. So they said, you know, well, I guess we're going to try a couple of rock songs. Mm -hmm. You know, and they tried uh, Us. Um, Creed, I forget there was a third one. There were three of them that they tried. And this one blew up bigger than the others. Uh, and boom, there you go. Then they had the number one songs too, you know, the pop stations with it. Um, How You Remind Me was the left hook. The right hook came with the Spider Man song, didn't it? Um, If you're talking multi-formats, yeah. But mm -hmm. first there had to be a right hook to follow it up at rock radio to make sure that they didn't become homogenized and rock radio goes, ah, I don't really want to play them anymore. Right, okay. That was never again. Sure. And that just lit it up. That was you know, like, yeah. whoa. A bit dirtier, a bit faster, a bit darker. Yeah, definitely darker. Great topic great, you know, lyrics about a problem, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so that, that kind of solidified them there so that they weren't upset 
that they had to share this number one song of the year with the yeah. Bob That's interesting. So it, by design, how you remind me, solemn, accessible, mid-tempo, rock sensibilities, but also kind of a ballady sensibility. N- go to Never Again. Don't forget, this is a rock band. Yeah, and we yeah. made sure that we didn't go to pop radio with it, even though they wanted us to, until it was totally over at rock. Mm. And Rock was looking for a new track, and we delivered Never Again to them. And it started overnight success. Once that was there, they moved on to another track. It's almost like they didn't care so much the pop radio yeah. was coming in after the fact. Yeah. And they knew that, you know, I wasn't going to, you know, deliver the band with a silver platter to uh, the pop stations. That's mad. I, I, I love, like, the fact that you have to understand the ebbs and flows. Yeah, I would have never been able to do if if this all happened and a major label spent all that money on the first album mm-hmm. and didn't drop them and came with the second record. I would have never been able to do it. That band would have never had the amount of years of success and the amount of songs on multiple formats that they had. It would have been over a lot sooner. Wow. As if. That's, and obviously, Case, you, you said it before, you, you hate writing the checks, but he loves writing the checks. So he clearly, he, bet, he backed the right horse. Right. <laughs> How, so let's go on to the Spider-Man song then. So did you have any input in, into this? Because this, this is a collaborative effort. IDJ, Roadrunner, I think Sony's in there as well. And there's an island. Mm-hmm. So I, IDJ, of course. Um, that's another one. So the way I understand this is this is a Sony song, but they didn't have the right artists to deliver it or something like that. I'm not quite sure what the the situation is. We had the song, you know, Mm -hmm. the band did the song. Um, we were sitting on it and it was Lior who, I don't know, maybe watching what we do as he's coexisting. He, he was always fun when he came over to our offices because it was night and day from what he would he exist, existed in over there. Right. And he liked it. It was cool. I, I liked him also. I was mm-hmm. very careful with him, but I liked him. Um, and he would always say something like, you know, you should work all of our records, your staff. And whatever you got, Pop, we'll work those. Makes no sense. We got these two staffs. And, like, oh. <laughs> and, and you put all your bands on tour together. Oh, so cost conscious and cost effective, you know? <clears throat> and he was thinking along those lines, I think. And he was trying to break, uh, who's the band? Josie was in Saliva. Josie, Josie Scott, the then yep. lead vocalist for Saliva. They, had, they were in the process of breaking Saliva. And they had broken the uh, first tune or two, I believe. And uh, he wanted to have something as big as Nickelback help his baby that was coming into mm. uh, reality. So he kind of somehow forced Josie into the plan, recutting the single with the two of them, mm. which was was okay with us we were fine with that it didn't hurt the song didn't change the song didn't make it less dominant yeah it worked <laughs> and uh 
pop radio. I mean, it was a big movie. Mm-hmm. This is a big band. It was a no brainer. Yeah, totally. And the song itself had the pop sensibilities. Yeah. As well as rock sensibilities. So it was another one of those, you know, to buy. but right after that, all of a sudden, you know, the alternative stations who also came along and played all of the, the uh, Nickelback stuff, much to my surprise. Mm. Um, they were starting to wane on the band. There were just too many pop singles okay. that were coming along then. But a lot of them still played it, depending on where the stations were. You know, different different areas of the country back then, stations sounded different than other areas. Yeah. Not, so much, not so much these days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the ones enough. that were more in your urban areas, you know, they could play more rock stuff. The major big cities, you know, they were playing all the gitchy alternative stuff. Yeah. And this is this is kind of the pace now, isn't it, with Nickelback? Every album cycle, there's bang, bang, bang. And there's- yeah, but it got less successful as the years went on and the records went on. Yeah. Nothing lasts forever. Yeah, this is, this is like a band thing, though. It's not a Nickelback thing. It's an every band thing. And I guess you sort of, you hit, I don't, I don't like using words like peak because it quantifies things that aren't really real. You, over a certain amount of time, you just solidify your, the audience and the fan base. I always use the darkness and Dragon Force as like an example of this because great bands with these big meteoric sort of rises, but they've still got a core audience, which pays the bills very handsomely and it allows them to go and do their thing in these years, never mind like early 2000s. We have a disease here. I like to call it, American overkill. <laughs> yeah. You know, somebody finds something that works and they beat it to death. Mm. You know, and you can't do that. And again, I remember lots of times sitting with the band and management and our own label in meetings. And they're all so proud, you know, of everything that's going on. And I said, guys, I, you know, I am too, but I'm going to tell you something. I've never, ever seen so much airplay on one band at so many radio stations every day. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, <clears throat> there's stations that are playing a song every hour. By the band. You know, when I look at these spin totals every week and every month, you know, I go, oh boy, someday this is all going to bite, bite us in the ass. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea is to prolong it as long as possible. Can we prolong it forever? No way. Nobody ever was able to. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. What was the tipping point then for that, do you think? Tipping point? What kind of tipping point? Do you think there was a point where it was just like, okay, we've, we've definitely, it's definitely oversaturated now. We're going to start seeing diminishing returns. Was there a point, was there an album cycle which was like, ah, yeah, this, this is. Well, as the, the format started, you know, waning. Yeah. Ah, yeah. So there's other factors. Yeah. So first ones to do that were the uh, <clears throat> alternative stations. Mm. Um, then came the top 40 stations. The Hot ACs still stuck around. The Rock was still around. Mm. And that became the base for the band. And then slowly moved yeah, off. Yeah. So during this period, then we're talking like post 2000, so post suicide or post um, all the right reasons. Who's your favorite metal outfit? Because this is where Rhoda has gone. We've taken a fork in the road. We've got 
underground metal down here. And then we've got these triple A acts and there's like a, it, it sort of runs in parallel. Monty's still doing, Mike Gitter is still doing the, the underground metal thing. Which yeah. it gets, it gets, they start paying the bills. It's never operating at a complete loss. It's never completely underground in that sense. Roadrunner as a brand is still very much in everyone's faces as a metal brand. Yes. Did you, because t- I imagine from a resourcing point of view, when Nickelback or Slipknot have an album cycle, you're like, all your working days are running those records. Was there a point while there a particular act or a period you enjoyed from the other metal stuff? Or did you sort of keep true to your rock roots in terms of your input? Oh, no. I always knew that, you know, the soul of the label was all of the metal releases. Yeah. Out, many of which most people in the industry didn't even know existed. Mm. Only the, the metal heads. You know, they seeked all of these bands out. Mm. They knew about our bands before we released them. They knew about our bands before we signed them. Um, They were, and they were vocal. You know, Mm. we listened to the people. Yeah. It was was really an amazing thing to watch. You know, it didn't exist in any other, any other thing I've ever been involved with in the music industry. You know, it was wonderful. Uh, Do you think that's a metal thing or do you think that's a roadrunner thing? Both. Yeah. I'm sure it's a metal thing, but I know it was a roadrunner thing also. You know, come in contact with people that the only records they listened to were roadrunner records. It was the only true metal label. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've, you know, heard that. You know, what's your favorite favorite albums this year? Boom, 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 boom. They're all roadrunner. You know, it's like, wow. And uh, we made sure that that never went away. Even yeah. in the beginning, when they started to say, oh, Roadrunner, you, know, you got promotion people, oh, you're signing rock bands. No, we're going to stay true. We released a hell of a lot more metal product than we did rock product. Yeah, that was my world. <laughs> it was very carefully, you know, orchestrated. Yeah, yeah. So when we, so you say you were there for 10 years, so that puts you in 2008 when you left. Yeah. What were, uh, why did you leave? What were the circumstances leading up to you? Was it just retirement? Was it just? No, not retired. I'm not really retired. Um, I lived in New York for 20 years. Mm. Working for various labels, managing Mellencamp during that time. Um, I had a 40 mile commute to the city mm-hmm. every day <clears throat> and never really after about the first five years and the shine wore off, never really was a fan of the city. I hated the smells. I hated the noises. I hated the rudeness, but it was action central, yeah. you know, where I had to be. But one day we were... <clears throat> Who the hell was the band? Machine Head, ah. which which was my favorite of all the metal bands on the label. Mm-hmm. I was a big fan. <clears throat> um, they came out with a new record, and they had a single on it that I thought, oh, I got another one. It's called Crashing Around You. Right. And uh, we were going to do a blitz on this. And I told everybody, I said, pack your bags. Get on the road, go to all your major stations, promote this record. This is our next one. I got on the plane in New Jersey, 
to fly to Atlanta. And uh, as much as I really didn't like the city anymore, it's really kind of special because you can't fly over the city. How planes, when they take off, they fly around the city and you look down and it's, it's ominous. Mm. You know? And so I'm on the side of the plane where it's banking around the buildings and I see a plane coming towards the towers. Right. And I'm looking at, oh, that's nice. You know, Ooh, wait a minute. That looks like it's coming really good. Is he coming right straight over the city? Can't do And I was exactly at eye level mm -hmm. when the first one hit the tower. Right. And it was like, whoa. Lasted about five seconds and we were in the clouds. Mm -hmm. Well, everybody on that side of the plane was looking out the window. Oh, did you see that? What a terrible accident. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. There's going to be injuries and deaths. Never thinking because we always thought of ourselves as having Teflon, you know, never thinking that it's an attack. Yeah. So everybody's talking about it for about five minutes or so. And the uh, <clears throat> uh, pilot comes on and says very calmly, uh, please prepare for landing. Um, <clears throat> and I'm sitting there going, oh, no, did I get on a connector flight? I'm saying it aloud to myself. Mm -hmm. The guy sitting next to me goes, uh-uh, this was a direct flight. I said, that's what I thought, too. And all of a sudden, this plane comes down so fast mm -hmm. in Greenville, you know, and getting off the plane, uh, as we're unloading the pilot saying, I don't know whether you saw the terrible accident that uh, just happened, but a second plane, you know, hit the towers. We're all going, what? I got out of the plane. And that's a whole nother story there. But the first thing I did was got a hold of all of my staff and said, forget it. The last thing we need to be doing is promoting crashing, crashing around you. <laughs> so go home. Yeah. And that <clears throat> one experience. Then um, another experience was the big blackout in the city. I'm not familiar with this. Uh, there was a blackout about a year or two after, about two years after that. Okay. And I happened to be the senior person in the office that day. Jonas was out on the road. Case was out of town. So, you know, I'm it. Mm. <laughs> you know, Doug wasn't in. And uh, um there was a massive blackout, no electricity, still daytime. I said, you know, everybody, close it up, turn it up, go home, I'll lock up. Let's just get, get out of here before nightfall. Right. So everybody left, and I locked up and went to go get my car to drive home. It was on a lift. No electricity, I can't get my car down. <laughs> ah, great. Okay, it's starting to get dark outside. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get a hotel room. There aren't any, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the people who have hotel rooms, they can't get to their hotel unless they're on the first few floors and want to walk. Mm -hmm. And then if it's an electric door, they're not going to get in the door, you know, so there's people just all over the streets, mm. you know, hanging out, there's nothing they could do. And, uh, you know, I ended up sleeping on the street for the night and <laughs> getting a candle couple candles. I mean, it, it was, it was very tame. Yeah. It was very cool to watch happen. There was never any problems. And I would never have expected that. Mm. 
But you get situations like that, you know, with the, the, the planes in the tower. You know, I couldn't contact my family mm-hmm. because, you know, all the cell towers are, are down. Gross. You know, I had to find people to try and get a hold of them. You know, I got tired of my family, started to not like living there anymore either. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just said, you know what? I think we can do this. Let's uh, let's just pick up and go. We love Florida. We had a condo in uh, Clearwater. Right. That helped us to understand the area. We fell in love with Sarasota. Mm-hmm. And we said, let's go. Let's just buy a house down there. What am I going to do? I don't know. I'll figure it out, you know, figure it out when I get there. <laughs> Ironically, the home of a lot of Roger and Rack's Florida death metal. Yeah. You're, you're absorbed. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, things like that. And it all came to head. And I finally said, yep, let's do it. And I almost did it a year earlier. Mm. And Case and Jonas didn't believe me. They thought I was bucking for more money. <laughs> I said, no, 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 no. I didn't. Yeah. I, I, I got to go. I got to go. And I didn't do it that year. And then uh, the year that I did decide to do it, I was about six months in front of it. And I remember coming in, showing a picture of a house I bought in Florida. And they said, you're really doing this? You're really going to leave? I said, yeah. I, I, it's breaking my heart because I've never loved a job that I've ever had anywhere near as much as working here with all you guys. Yeah. And much with all the successes we've had you know when i got here nobody knew what roadrunner was i'm leaving everybody knows what roadrunner was is really and uh so we picked up and i left it was really hard yeah i did have tears in my eyes it was hard to leave um my staff were like my kids Mm -hmm. you know and they've all gone on to do what i did at labels in new york and i'm very proud of them Mm. And, um, yeah. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to ask what your what your um, your best and worst day of the label was, but I think we've kind of we've kind of covered them all, right? It must it must have been like well, best day was the realization <laughs> that I took a rock song to the number one most not I we took a rock song to the number one most played song of the year, you mm-hmm. know. Only one person can say that every year. <laughs> you know, it's one thing to do it, but to do it at Roadrunner was really kind of special. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And I was there. Didn't really have. I, I really can't think of horrible day. I, I know a sad day for me was. We had, uh, you know, Big Wreck? Big Wreck. Rings a bell. Ian Thornley. Mm, Thornley, Big Wreck. Uh, it's a, Big Wreck was a band out of Boston. Okay. And uh, they had one hit called The, the Oaf. Uh, stealing who? <laughs> uh, the Oaf, my look is wasted. Trips. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You'll hear Pete Townsend if you listen to it. <laughs> and uh, the uh, guitar player, Ian Thornley, writer, singer, uh, disbanded the band mm-hmm. and just started his own band called Thornley. And I've always been a big fan. And so is Chad, Nickelback, in fact. Yeah. Uh, 
Chad covered one of his songs, one of his heavy songs, mm-hmm. but made it a ballad. It was a really magical song that we never did anything with, and I always wanted to. I thought it was a smash. It's called My Mistake. Right. The chance, if you haven't heard it, you should mm-hmm. listen to it. Um, <clears throat> and he was a fan of Thornley's. In fact, his label signed him in Canada, his band. Well, we, we then signed them for the States. Yeah. And he had a demo of a song that I thought was a smash. Everybody on my staff thought the same thing. This is going to be great. And unfortunately, even though he tried a couple of times to recreate the vibe of that demo, right. couldn't do it. Mm. And we'd listen to him go, eh, that the soul is gone. You know, mm. you know, Ian, go back in, listen to the demo. Do more like the demo. Can't we clean the demo up? No, we can't clean the demo up. It's not well recorded enough. And I never got that song, and I, you know, always wanted. Interesting. That's a really nuanced worst day. I love it. (laughs) It's as bad as I can. I mean, I can't. I'm looking at notes from my days there. (laughs) It was. I will. I will say it was very hard dealing with Steve Richards and Slipknot, Mm. and we were having success, and all he did was. Poisoned me to yeah. the band. And it wasn't until after he died that I was able to get with the band and talk about different things. And it was the first time they knew that I was the one that, you know, uh, had the idea. I was going to bat for them. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, <clears throat> and it was nice then, but it was really hard dealing with them. Yeah. Yeah. And hated my guts and I have no idea why. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, it's a hard way to deal with one of your major bands Mm. when you got a manager that's poisoning everything like that. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Nothing you can do. No, nothing you can do. No, no. Well, that was awesome, dude. Is there any anything that I've missed? Any any anecdotes or observations that I've I've, because this for me was just like, let's tread water and understand your world a bit because I know nothing of radio as I described earlier. But if there's any sort of observations or stories about the label or your time there that you you, you wanted to um, disclose, but we haven't got to feel free. No, I think the only thing we didn't touch on was just the nuance of an earlier uh, thought pattern <clears throat> was when we were with uh, IDJ. Mm. We never helped them with their records, but they did help us on the pop side. But right. they were really frustrated because I'd never let them deliver the band to those stations. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was uncanny to them. They just, what do you mean? You have to do this. I said, no, no, you have to do that. <laughs> I don't have to do that. I did that for years and I never believed in it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I even more so now don't have to believe in it because we're not a pop label. Yeah. So why should I kiss their ass? Yeah. When they come yeah. to the party last, you know? No way. <laughs> you just send them the product and that was it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, I can't think of much else. No, that's, that's, that's still, it's been, that's been incredible, mate. Well, thank you for hand, holding my hand through this uh, three-year tenure. Sure. And if you have any other questions, feel free to reach oh, out. I, dude, you know, I've been gone from it for so long. <laughs> it's really hard to kind of draw back. All right, I'm going to pull some memories out of here. <laughs> I could, you know, just in thinking back on our whole diatribe here, Mm -hmm. I really am sorry for 
saying I, I, I too much here. Okay. Because it really was we. The only time I believe that I was the right thing is when it's just, you know, I. <laughs> I don't know, but, you know, I, I use the word I when I should have been using we a lot of times. I know what you mean because, first of all, it is you in terms of a way of thinking. But sometimes when you're connecting neural dots in your head, it's easy to say, you know, I did that. Yeah, yeah. I get you. I Most people. Been, basically, I couldn't have been I without we. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, if, if, 